time this next week uh, considering what you have to be thankful for and pouring out your thankfulness to the Lord for all that he has done for you uh, and all that he continues to do. Well, uh, next Sunday, we're looking to study thankfulness just a little bit as we're uh, just will be a few days after Thanksgiving, which in my opinion is if not the best holiday of the year, one of the best holidays of the year. I love it. It is a great time. Uh, But we'll be doing that next Sunday. And then in the month of December, we're going to be studying uh, the early chapters of Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew 1, and then into Matthew 2. There are several instances in those chapters that talk about Christ's coming, fulfilling the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew specifically uses that word, fulfilled to speak of what happens to Jesus or what he does as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, And so we're going to be studying those as we uh, roll into Christmas time. And then starting in the new year, I may have told you this, I can't remember, but I'm just very excited. Uh, We're going to be studying the Gospel of John uh, in 2022. I think it'll take us most of the year, uh, but I am just thrilled about this study. Um, I've never done an extended uh, series through John or study of the book of John And I've been prepping and reading for it, and it is awesome. (laughs) Oh, it's just so wonderful, beautifully structured, put together. The message obviously is uh, fantastic. And so I would encourage you to start reading the Gospel of John and preparing for that. Uh, I'm I'm just thrilled that we're going to be able to do that uh, together in the new year. But you can open up today to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where uh, we'll probably be most of the time as far as texts. Um, But we'll be jumping a little bit all over the place as we continue this series, Pursuing Peace in a Divided World. As many of you know, uh, they opened a Chick-fil-A here in Woodhaven recently. I don't know if you're aware of that. As a Christian, you, you should be. No. I know some people believe that Chick-fil-A is God's restaurant and that they serve only holy chicken sandwiches there. And I don't really want to enter into that debate. But I will say, have you had their cookies and cream milkshake? (sighs) Wonderful. Now, regardless of what you think about their food, the food at Chick-fil-A, I this week was watching a video Uh, about the business model that Chick-fil-A has. It kind of caught my eye, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I watched this video uh, report that the Wall Street Journal did on Chick-fil-A's business model. It's very interesting and very intentional, um, which probably will come as no surprise. One of the most, if not the most important aspects of Chick-fil-A's business model is the process that they have of choosing who will own and operate each specific franchise. So when they opened the one down here, there was this massive process to decide who would be the person who would be called the owner-operator and who would lead the day-to-day operations and oversee that particular restaurant. Every year, Chick-fil-A as a corporation receives 8,000, over 8,000 applications to be an owner-operator. And each year, right now, they're opening on average about 100 new local stores a year. And so they only accept 100 of those over 8,000 applications, and that's an acceptance rate of just over 1%. 
So if you apply to be an owner-operator for Chick-fil-A, you have less of a chance, much less of a chance of doing that than you do of getting into Harvard. The acceptance rate at Harvard is 5%. Now there's a reason for this whole massive interview process that they have, and it is quite long, 12 to 18 months, and as they go through this interview process with each applicant that reaches that stage, there's specific qualities that they're looking for, and they know what they are, and they're very intentional about finding them, and they want each owner-operator to have those qualities, and those qualities include the ability to develop people. They're very specific about that. We want you to be able to lead a team and develop people into more productive employees. We want you as an owner-operator to be able to foster relationships in the local community. And we want you to be able to approach your job with energy and passion and enthusiasm as you represent the brand. Now, as they interview people and have them fill out all these different forms and everything and talk with them, they know that if a person has these qualities, that they're going to be successful as an owner-operator. Because these qualities are something that flow out of who they are inside, and they will uh, put these on display no matter what circumstances they're involved in and no matter what situations come up in their day-to-day -day operation of this business. Now, we're not here this morning to try to convince you to develop the qualities necessary to be an owner-operator of a Chick-fil-A, obviously. That's not my goal this morning, but we are here to talk about the qualities and the attitudes that are necessary for you to grow as a peacemaker. That's what we're looking for as a part of this series this morning. If this statement is true that comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If that is true, then we want to know what qualities will make you a peacemaker. What do you need to develop? Who do you need to become? What qualities and attitudes do you need to put on display to be a person who no matter what the circumstances, you're able to approach it and cultivate an atmosphere of peace and solve conflict. It's not just something that happens spontaneously. You don't sort of stumble into becoming a peacemaker. It doesn't happen by reading a list of principles or steps to resolve conflict. That can be very helpful, and we'll talk maybe about some of that next week. But that's not all you need to become a peacemaker. There's a mindset. There's, there's a character that you need to develop. There's virtue that you need to put on, an attitude and a mentality that are necessary to be someone who makes peace and pursues peace. And of course, the problem is in our fallen condition, and even as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, we have new hearts, but the old man hangs on and still tries to influence and harm our our walk with Christ and our pursuit of peace, the problem is that peacemaking just doesn't come very naturally to us. It's a challenge for us. And so we have to cultivate these qualities that I'm going to talk about this morning in order to be formed into peacemakers. Now, we do this for a couple of reasons. One is so we can resolve conflict. We, we want to do that, but we want to culti cultivate these qualities so that before we even attempt to resolve conflict, 
we can rightly assess the situation. And that's a whole lot of what needs to happen when it comes to resolving conflict, is you have to be able to see the circumstances and see the conflict correctly before you can be a peacemaker. Now, here's what I mean by that. If I'm walking through the wilderness of Montana, and I'm walking along, and I'm on a trail there hiking, and I encounter a grizzly bear up ahead, There are a number of factors that are going to determine how I'm going to act in that situation, right? There are qualities that have to be there for me to be able to rightly assess what I should do and how I should approach this situation. So if I have experience in this, right, if I've hiked before and encountered a grizzly bear and learned what to do in that circumstance, then that's going to bring a level of calmness to me, and I'm going to be able to think more clearly about my next steps. I'm going to see the situation correctly, and my mind's going to be calm, and I'll be able to rightly assess what I can do. If I happen to be carrying bear spray with me, that's going to give me a level of confidence in the situation, because if worse comes to worse and this thing charges me, then I do have a defense that is, is pretty helpful and ultimately will detour the bear from coming any closer. And so those attitudes, those qualities of calmness and of confidence help me to see the situation correctly so that I don't wrongly assess it and think, I got to get out of here and run, which I don't know if you know, but that's the worst thing you can do in that sort of situation. You're not gonna outrun the bear. And so those qualities help you to rightly assess and then you act based on how you see the situation. It works the same way with our character, with who we are on the inside. When you're a person who is loving and gentle and patient and those qualities come from inside out and they have been developed and put on over time, then they help you to react rightly in a situation and they help you to see that situation clearly and accurately. Those qualities become like glasses that you put on and you can see through the lens and you're able to rightly assess what's going on. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna paint a picture of a peacemaker for you. I wanna describe this person using four attitudes or qualities that we need in order to be people who pursue peace and who rightly can resolve conflict. Four attitudes necessary to actively pursue peace, to be a peacemaker. The first one of these is you need the attitude or the quality of being shaped by the gospel. This is foundational for all of your Christian life, and certainly it will work itself out in how you see conflict and then how you respond to conflict. To be gospel-shaped, and I use that word shaped intentionally, and I'll describe why in a second here, but to be gospel-shaped is to live a life that conforms to the reality of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Obviously, it is the good news. That's what that word means, but it is the good news that Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and death, And that he has brought God's kingdom initially is present and ultimately will finally be consummated and realized. But he has brought God's kingdom and won the victory over sin and death through his substitutionary atonement. 
Because of his death for me, this is the gospel, I am forgiven of my sins. I am freed from the penalty and the power of sin in my life. And my future is one of hope. And it's hope that for all of eternity, I will dwell in God's presence as one who is free from the very, the very presence of sin when I stand before him. Now, that's a really short summary of the gospel, but those truths should shape and form and control my daily life. And I think if you rightly understand those truths, they will conform and shape your life in profound and very practical ways. You're probably open to Ephesians 4, but I want you to look at Ephesians 4.1 with me. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore... Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, he's the one writing this, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? So there's this walk that you have, which is your daily life. It's all the practical habits and decisions that you make throughout every single day. It's the pattern of life that you have. And he says, I want that pattern of life to be comparable, to be fitting to fit with the truths of the gospel, the calling with which you have been called. And let me try to help you visualize this. So we had at our house, this is maybe a month or two ago, we had a new concrete patio poured off of our, out of our back door there. And it was really fascinating to watch the guys prep to pour the concrete. So what they do is they spend a lot of their time building a form for the concrete to be poured into. And they're very intentional and very specific about how they do this. And they drive wooden stakes into the ground and they take this wood that is malleable to a certain extent and they bend it and they create this form that the concrete can then be poured into. And so the goal is to, when the concrete is wet, it conforms to these contours and then it sets and it becomes hard in the shape that they want it to go into. Our calling in Christ gives a definite shape to our lives, to our decisions, to our attitudes, to our actions. It forms and controls and gives contour to our walk, to how we live every day. It provides the borders for how we think, for what we love, and for how we see the world around us. And so, so what sort of shape does the gospel give to a life that has been formed by it? How does your calling impact your character? Look at verses 2 and 3 in Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So these are the character qualities that are formed by your calling, by the gospel. Why are these the qualities that come from the gospel? Look at verses 4 through 6. Why is peace such a big part of this? Verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The gospel puts these edges out, these contours, this form in place that says those of us who are in Christ have been put together and joined together because there's one Lord and one baptism and one faith. And so the shape of the gospel among believers, particularly within a local church, is one of unity. And these are the qualities that actually help you to pursue that unity and that peace. And so the rest of chapter 4, it would be great for you to go back and read this later, but the rest of chapter 4 continues to work out what a gospel-shaped and formed life looks like. And then you'll notice at the end of the chapter, as you get down to the end of the chapter, he starts to give us more examples of what this looks like. It's like he's describing the concrete that is poured into the borders of the gospel. Here's how this works in daily life. And there's a big principle that should give shape to our daily lives. Look at verse chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. But right before this, he describes unbelievers and their loves and affections and, and their character qualities. And he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then here's what should be happening. Here's the form that the gospel gives to our lives. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the structure of the gospel-shaped life. It is one that is continually saying, these old man deceitful desires need to be put away. I need to be renewed by the gospel, by the work of Christ in my mind. I need to think differently. And now I'm going to put on new qualities and new attitudes. And then he gives us several examples of that in the rest of the chapter, but I want you to flip down to the end of the chapter, verses 31 and 32. Here's a clear example of what this looks like. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So there's the putting off and then Here's the putting on, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and then here's the renewing of your mind, as God in Christ forgave you. So the action is to forgive one another. That's the, the daily form that our lives take. Why? Why that action? Why should we be people of forgiveness? Because the gospel tells us that we have been forgiven of all of our sins. That's the form. So then your life is poured out in a way that conforms itself to that reality. The mold is Christ's forgiveness of sins, our sins, and the shape that forgiveness gives to your life is to be one that gives and gives and gives forgiveness over and over again. It is one of lavish forgiveness of sins, of the sins of others. And so your daily life has been shaped and formed and controlled by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
when it looks like this. And you'll probably remember if you've been here the last few weeks that in the very first sermon of this series, we talked about the different aspects of peace in Scripture, peace with one another, peace within yourselves, shalom, the peace that God will bring at the end of time. But the very first type of peace, and we said the most important, is peace with God. It starts there. And so you and I will not be peace-filled, peace-desiring people unless we have been formed by the reality that we have peace with God. It has to start there, and then our lives will take their structure from that peace. And that shaping, you can see it in verse 32, includes this quality, which is our next one. Sorry, I got too excited about Ephesians 4 and clicked through (laughs) all of those. This next quality here, four attitudes necessary to actively pursue peace. Here's the next one, a person of kindness and of gentleness. Now, as you hear that word kindness, it is not uncommon today. I'm sure that probably this week you have seen t-shirts promoting the idea of kindness in the world around you. Maybe you've seen some that say something like this. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. Or maybe you've seen a shirt that says, kindness matters. Now sometimes, as I've seen these shirts, they will come with a rainbow on them, or the words will be written with rainbow throughout them. And the message that is implicit in that is that kindness means accepting anything and anyone no matter what. And here's the difficulty we have as Christians. We see that and we go, but that's not kindness. And so we can be tempted to think, well, this, this is not really something that's important for Christians. Don't let the world misuse a word, kindness, and don't let their misuse of that push you away from understanding the importance of this and rightly understanding why the Bible says be kind to one another. Biblically speaking, kindness does not mean accepting anything and everything no matter what. It doesn't mean affirming of anything that's out there. But it does mean especially as we deal with one another, kindness does mean that we handle conflict and disagreement in a way that is gentle. It's firm, but it's gentle and it's kind. We don't have to accept anything. We're controlled by the gospel and by the shape of scripture and what the Bible teaches. But the way in which we handle those disagreements is formed by kindness because we have been shown kindness. I want to show you a passage in 2 Timothy. I think it's on the screen, so you don't have to to turn there. But I want to show you a passage where Paul specifically talks about acting with kindness and does it in the context of a disagreement and how those should go hand in hand for us as believers. Now, in 2 Timothy, to be clear, he's speaking to a pastor. and He's talking to someone in ministry, full-time ministry, But the principle, I think, is quite important for all of us. And so let's start here in verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then rather than having to do with foolish controversies, all of social media he could have just put in there, but here's what he says about a pastor. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then look at the results of of this disagreement that Timothy has with his opponents, and when he is kind, and when he acts with gentleness, but is firm, look at the results. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul ties here the way that we respond to disagreements with kindness to potentially God using that to bring a person to repentance and to help them see the error of their ways. Think about that for a second. God may well use the manner in which you handle disagreements to lead someone to see things more biblically and to respond to them correctly. He may use your gentle firmness to influence a person who is headed down the wrong path. Next quality here. Gospel-shaped kindness and gentleness and reasonableness, which I looked that up, and it is a word. It sounded funny when I wrote it. Reasonableness. Conflict makes people lose their minds. They do. I do. People get so angry and so tied to their position or their interpretation of events and how they see things that they can't even, we can't even, I can't even think straight. The Bible actually, several places, tells believers that we should be reasonable. It speaks to this and actually tells us that we should be reasonable in the context of making peace with others. James chapter 3, if you want to turn there, you can. Again, I'm pretty sure it's on the screen after this. But James chapter 3 talks about this and connects this quality of being reasonable to our pursuit of peace. Now, I told you last time in James that the the thematic center of the book is chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. So as you're reading the book of James, you get to those verses, that's the center of the book. That's the the main lesson of the book. Wisdom from above for wholeness and spiritual maturity. That's the message of James. And in that section, he's contrasting earthly, sensual, unspiritual wisdom, wisdom that ignores God from the picture, with heavenly wisdom, wisdom that comes from God and is shaped and formed by the gospel. And wisdom from above is very much interested in pursuing and making peace, and it acts out of attitudes that promote peace. So on the screen, you can see his description of wisdom from above, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the last line of this, verse 18, describes the wise as those who pursue and make peace. How do they do that? Well, they put on these qualities that are listed here in verse 17. They operate out of those attitudes and those qualities. If you want to listen to a longer explanation of this, when we preached through the book of James, I think it was last year, I went through this text in a little bit more detail. But you can see here the second attitude that's mentioned is the one we just talked about, kindness or gentleness. And then I want to draw your attention to the quality, the attitude that is right after gentle, to be open to reason. Now, what does this mean? Before we answer that, let me just point out again, this is something that is a defining feature of heavenly wisdom, okay? This is something that is to be pursued by Christians and is something that is a quality of those who are spiritually mature, open to reason. Wouldn't everyone just say that that we're reasonable, right? I mean, we all think that we're reasonable, I often think I am the most reasonable person on the planet. It is everyone else who has lost their minds, not me. But here's what it means to be open to reason. This is the the person who is not looking to start a fight. They're not looking to argue. They will have a disagreement if they need to. If it is required for them to, they will be firm and gentle in that disagreement. But this person is not looking to start a fight. This person is compliant and willing to yield when it is appropriate and when it is necessary. They're not wishy-washy. They're not squishy on doctrine. They don't move about with every wind of doctrine. They're firm on what is right and what is biblical. But when it is appropriate, they are willing to yield. This person who's open to reason is able to think from the other person's perspective. They're able to see it from that person's perspective. They're able to take into account why that person may have the opinion they do. They don't necessarily agree with that opinion, but they're able to think through, okay, I see why you think that way. I understand where you're coming from. They're open to reason to having someone explain that to them. They're able to to see the other person's life experience and circumstances and how that may impact what they think. Listen, it's always a good idea to remind yourself when you're having a conflict with someone, when someone seems upset or down on a particular day and you're like, what is going on? It's always good to remind yourself that people have very difficult stuff going on. Lives are hard. Bodies hurt. Emotions take hit after hit. Work is hard during the week. And that's one of the glories or should be of coming here on Sunday is that we can rejoice in God's sovereign care for us and his goodness. And we can fellowship together and be open and honest about the difficulties we're having. But the person who's open to reason is able to think that way and they're able to see that the other person might be going through a difficult time. And I may not know all the details. I think 
a lot of our squabbles, and again, I'm not talking about anything specific here at, at WBC, but I think a lot of our squabbles and our conflicts boil down to the fact that we just don't listen to each other very well. We don't think about it from the other person's perspective. Most of us, myself included, have trouble considering the possibility that I might be wrong. I might not be seeing this accurately. Maybe I have contributed to this situation and this conflict. There are times where the conflict is 100% one party's fault. Those times are very few and far between. It may be 95-5. It may be 50-50. But most of the time, it is not 100% the responsibility of one party. And so the person that is open to reason, this counts in a marriage, in a church relationship, the person that is open to reason is willing to listen and to acknowledge and own their 5%. Okay, yes. I did not see this correctly. I see what you're saying. I'm owning my contribution to this conflict. That's what the reasonable person does. And because they respond in that way, they're able to make peace. And that leads us to our last quality this morning. Four attitudes necessary for us to actively pursue peace. Gospel-shaped, kindness and gentleness, reasonableness. And the last one, I think this one pairs nicely with the first one as probably the two most important here. And there are others other qualities that aren't on this list, certainly, that are listed in James 3 there, that are necessary for peace, but we're honing in on these four this morning. The last one here is humility. This might be the most vital and might be the least had quality. We saw this listed back in Ephesians 4, didn't we? This was the first quality that came out of Paul's mouth in verse 2. To walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called with humility. It's the first one. The shape of the gospel forms us into humble people. And then he goes on in Ephesians 4 to describe, of course, the way the gospel continues to shape us. And then we just saw in James chapter 3 how wisdom from above causes us to be peaceful and gentle and open to reason. And then he continues that discussion in James 4 to talk about conflict, the reason for conflict, and the antidote for conflict, which is humility. There's an extended section in James 4 on this virtue and this quality. Look what he says in James 4, 6. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is quite a statement. You want to be on the opposite side of God? Cultivate your arrogance. You want to receive grace from God and recognize His grace? Position your heart in a way that is humble and responds to Him properly. Philippians chapter 2 is another passage. I think we read this at the end of our time last week. But this speaks to Christ's attitude of humility. Once again, gospel-shaped. And then this quality is the concrete that is formed by the gospel. 
Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what is humility? And why is this so important? Maybe the most important quality for pursuing peace. We just saw in James 4.6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility is the opposite quality of pride. It's the opposite attitude of arrogance and of pride. So what is it to be proud? Well, to be prideful is to be puffed up. It's to be puffed up when you think about yourself. It's to have an enlarged view of yourself. It's to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, not less like, uh, highly of yourself than you ought to think. In the animal kingdom, there are several animals of all different sorts. There are birds that do this. There are frogs that do this. There are even snakes that do this, but they will inflate themselves or make themselves bigger to appear more dangerous than they really are in order to detour predators. That's the picture of pride. You're inflated, you're puffed up, you're swelled up in your opinion of yourself. You have an enlarged view of who you are, your abilities, your character, your importance. And so what's humility? Well, humility is the opposite. It's to have a smaller view of yourself. It's to shrink the attention that is focused on self. I think a very helpful description, I read uh, this phrase when I was studying this, one of the authors used this, is a modest self-perception. It doesn't mean you think you're junk and you're worthless. You're made in God's image. And so there is, there's beauty and glory to who you are as an image bearer, but to be humble is to have a modest self-perception. Now, what other venue do we often use the word modest in? Well, we often use that word, particularly in Christian circles, to talk about dress and clothing. And the root idea when we use that word when we're talking about dress is that you're not drawing attention to your body through what you wear. And I think that's helpful. Humility is a modest self-perception. You're not trying to draw attention to yourself. You're not having an inflated view of yourself. And one of the results of that is if I have a modest self-perception, then I'm not always focused on self. I'm not always thinking about myself. My attention is not always focused on me and what these circumstances mean to me. It means that I am, like Jesus, considering others more important than myself. And I think the crux of that, considering others as more important of yourselves, is you're considering others. You can't have your attention simultaneously focused on you and what this means for you and other people. And so Jesus had his attention focused on us and on others. And in many ways, he receded from the background or into the background in that. Author Tim Keller described humility like this, and I think this is very helpful. 
Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Have you ever been involved in your work at your job? Or maybe been doing some yard work and you're so caught up into it that you just forget that you're doing it in some ways. You, you just are so focused on the work and finding joy in that work that your sense of self recedes into the background. They call this the flow. You get in the flow, right? And you're able to get a lot accomplished. That is a parallel to gospel humility. You're so concerned with others and so focused on others that this enlarged sense of self goes away and you recede into the background. A Puritan author put it like this. A humble man values others at a higher rate than himself. And the reason is because he can see his own heart better than he can another's. He sees his own corruption and thinks, surely it is not so with others. Their graces are not so weak as his. Their corruptions are not so strong. Surely, he thinks, they have better hearts than I. A humble Christian studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies, and that makes him put a higher value upon others than himself. Pride is the opposite of humility. And you can see, I think, you can start to make the connections here as to why pride causes conflict and humility causes peace. We think about the essence of pride. If your ego swells up to the point where you can't stop thinking about yourself and putting self at the center and every interaction and every situation revolves around you, if that is true of you, then your overinflated, swollen self is going to bump into other people. And it's going to cause conflict. And it's going to cause conflict because you want nothing more than to swell your sense of self even more. And so you're just constantly bumping into people because your ego is so enlarged and so centered on you. But if you have a modest perception of yourself, if you tend to forget about yourself in service of others, and you tend to think of others more highly because you see their excellencies and you know your own sinfulness and your own weakness and how you have gotten things wrong before, if you have a modest perception of yourself, you can see how that can cultivate peace. You know that you have received grace, grace upon grace, because you know how sinful you are. And you know you're only here by God's mercy. And so you're turned outward, listening to others, hearing their story, hearing their perspective, not always agreeing with it, but you're forgetting self as you're understanding other people. And you genuinely want what's best for them, just like Jesus did for us. And when all of that happens, you will automatically be a person who pursues peace. When these qualities are put on, the pursuit of peace will come naturally to you. 
just like it did for the Lord Jesus and just like his work does for us. And so the challenge for you and for me this morning is to consider these four qualities, these four attitudes. Consider these attitudes and learn them from the right place, from the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all exemplified in him. And they give us the form and the shape to our lives that they do because of his work. And as we cultivate these qualities, as we imitate him, as we grow in letting the gospel influence us and shape us and conform us to him, then we will, like him, grow into people who pursue peace, who bring reconciliation with others. And we'll grow into peacemakers and honor him and exalt him in the process. Let's pray. Father, we're just astounded by your word this morning and astounded by the grace and the forgiveness that we have received. Lord Jesus, you have humbled yourself in order to reconcile us to you. We were under the wrath of God at enmity with you, and yet you have brought peace and forgiveness, mercy and grace. And so I pray this morning that as we see these qualities and we see this beautiful picture, the scriptures paint of you and of your work, who you are, that our hearts will be drawn toward that, that we will want to be like you. And that because of that desire there, we will cultivate kindness. We will cultivate being open to reason. We will cultivate gospel humility and we will let the truths of the good news shape and form us to be peacemakers. Please do that work in our hearts. Do that work in my heart, Lord. Help it to come more and more naturally to me over time as I'm sanctified by your spirit and by your grace. I pray this for our whole church body as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.